Okay, now we come to uh, our message this morning, and as I was saying earlier, we're going to start a a series of studies in the Gospel of John. Uh, Most specifically, we're going to start in the chapter of John 14 this morning. Now, the purpose of John's Gospel was to prove conclusively that Jesus is the Son of God, and that all who believe in him will have eternal life. In essence, it was written to new Christians, but also to non-Christians who were perhaps searching at the time. And as I say, we're going to pick up uh, the Gospel starting in John 14, and this is um, towards the end of the Lord's Supper, where Jesus has gathered all his disciples, and we're reading from... Chapter 14, verses 1 to 14. So let's read the Lord's word together. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Thanks be to God. A Brexit Easter is a blessed Easter. An Easter we look back upon as a time when the Lord has spoken to our hearts. And as the pastor has already said, uh, he and I will be sharing this pulpit in the weeks leading up to Easter, looking at the chapters, this time from the book of, uh, of John, where he's a little bit light on detail when it comes to the actual happenings, but he's... He's the only one who really gives us, uh, in in any depth at all, the teaching, the final teachings that Jesus gives to his disciples leading up to this time. Uh, 
The book is written right towards the end of the, the first century, 95-97 AD, well after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. The temple has been flattened. Uh, John, the writer, is John, most likely the son of Zebedee, the beloved uh, disciple as he's known, the writer of three letters and, and also the book of Revelation. And he's probably writing somewhere uh, in his church, possibly in Ephesus, we don't know for sure, maybe on the island of Patmos. Some say maybe he's even down in Egypt when he's writing, we just don't know. But he's writing to the church at the time, the so-called Johnine church, the church particularly in Asia Minor, which has been said is, is, is there are Christians, there are non-Christians, it's also about 50-50 Gentile and Jewish. And the theme of this great book, this great gospel, is the Word, the Word, the written Word and the living Word, Jesus Christ. And the first four chapters of the book talk about the presentation of this word to the world. And then from chapters 5 through to chapter 12, we have all of the miracles of Jesus, all of the stories, all of the parables. So we have the authentication, if you like, of this word. And then in the chapters that we're going to be looking at from 13 through to 17, particularly we have the confirmation of the word as he teaches us what it's all about. And then with the crucifixion and the resurrection itself in, verse, in chapters 18 to 21, we have the vindication of the word. But we found ourselves now at the beginning of chapter 14. In chapter 13 we find that indeed they've had a supper together in a celebration of the actual feast of Passover. But the teaching will move across a number of different themes over the next few chapters. And the venue will change. They'll move out of the upper room, and it says at the end of chapter 14, they, they, they move out. We don't know exactly where they're going, but it appears as if they're taking a road that takes them down past the temple and out of the gate and across the book Kidron and then up into the Garden of Gethsemane on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, where we find ourselves uh, at the time of Jesus' arrest. But our passage today is... John chapter 14 and the first 15 verses. And I've entitled this Sunday and next Sunday's message, because I couldn't fit it all into one Sunday. I would be here till, till, uh, till midnight. Six wonderful assurances for a troubled heart. And we're going to look at three of them this morning. This passage of scripture, as it was read to us by Kevin, you'll see is, is an excellent passage for those who are struggling with heart trouble. It's a passage for those with heart trouble. And of course, we don't mean the kind of heart trouble that can be dealt with with some kind of glycerine medication or some kind of bypass surgery. Not that kind of heart trouble, although in some ways that kind of heart trouble is easier to fix than the heart trouble that Jesus is talking about. Because he's referring to the kind of heart trouble that steals our sleep, keeps our minds churning all day long and all night long. It's the kind of heart trouble that induces stress and quashes joy. Some people call it worry. We as Christians tend to use more acceptable words like uh, concern or lack of peace or burden. So you hear Christians say, I feel burdened by something when they actually mean I'm worried sick. But Jesus, in this passage, and you'll notice he opens the chapter and closes the chapter with the same words, verse 1 and verse 27, don't let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And we shouldn't be surprised that the disciples' hearts are very troubled. Because you'll read in chapter 13 that they're anxious, they're fearful, and they're confused. 
Their master has just told them that there's a traitor in their midst. That one of them is going to betray him. He's also said to Peter, you're going to betray me five times. You're going to deny me. People are going to say, aren't you one of Jesus' men? You're going to say, no. And Peter doesn't know his own heart. Um, and as it is with us, we, we sometimes fill ourselves with self-confidence as Peter does. And we think we know our hearts and then we fall off the cliff into anxiety and fear and confusion. We don't know where to turn. But maybe for the disciples, the biggest cause for their anxiety and their troubled hearts was this. That again and again, with increased intensity, Jesus is saying to them that he's leaving them. After three years of intense training and intense ministry, he says, I'm going away. And they don't get it. Where's he going? And, and can we go with him when he goes? Now, how can we get to where he's going? And, and have we caused such offense that he has to leave us now? And these questions are perplexing and they're causing great unease and they're tumbling around in the disciples' minds. So the question then is, can Jesus find a way to calm these troubled minds? And how is he going to do it? And of course, has Jesus got a way then to calm our troubled minds? Can he provide us with some balm, some soothing cure for our own troubled hearts and troubled spirits. And I believe in this chapter, chapter 14, there are six very specific assurances that Jesus says. So he backs up his statement when he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. And the first assurance is in the first six verses. And keep the passage open in front of you if you would. And I'm going to entitle the first assurance this. No matter how troubled your hearts might be, your future is secure. Your future is secure. Do you have a troubled heart this morning? Are you deeply anxious about some major issue in your life? Are you floored by fear or anxiety? Here's Jesus' first answer to your fear, your uncertainty. It's an assurance of something that is absolutely definite and absolutely certain. You are going to heaven. Of course, we're addressing ourselves to disciples here, to those who our pastor described a little bit earlier have, have, through the grace of God, crossed over and become his children. That's who we're speaking to. Now, you might have noticed that the Bible very rarely actually condemns worry per se. Feelings of distress are common to humanity. Even Jesus has his moments of great distress and concern especially in the final hours leading to his death. But what he's saying to them here is this. He's saying, don't let your hearts be troubled specifically by my going away. Don't let that get to you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Or a better translation would be, keep on believing in me. You have already been believing in God, so keep on believing in God and keep on believing in me. Don't stop. And he goes on then to assure them that their future is absolutely secure. He says to them that, he says that my going away has got nothing to do with you. Don't feel bad. It's not you that's causing me to go away. It's not your failures. What he's saying to them is this. I'm going away, and the reason I'm going away is to secure your future. Did you hear that? 
Jesus says to them and to us, the reason I'm going to my death and then I'm going to my kingdom is to secure your future. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. You'll remember from the old King James Version, the word rooms was translated mansions. Remember that in my father's house are many mansions. And this inspired many, I think, especially the health and wealth gospel peddlers to dream of having in heaven, even here on earth, some kind of castle-like estate. Seems they've simply transferred their frustrated materialism into the spiritual realm. We earthlings are good at that. No, the word translated here simply means my father's house has many dwelling places. There are many places to stay. And there's a very clear link then between this and the beginning of chapter 15 where he talks about the branches abiding in the vine. In my father's house are many places to stay. And he uses, I think, a metaphor from Near Eastern tradition at the time. The whole idea of an abode or a place to remain. In, in, in ancient Near Eastern cultures, once a, a bridegroom was betrothed or engaged, he was given a set period of time to do a little bit of building. And what he had to do is he had to go to the family home and build on a couple of rooms which would be suitable for him and his new wife. And then after the betrothal period, he went to fetch his bride. And after the formal wedding feast, the newlyweds would then move into this new enlarged home and became a part of the integral extended family. And that's what this passage is about. In my father's house, in my father's place, are many places for you to stay. And this is the, the metaphor that they would have understood very, very well. But some of you might say, well, how's knowing that I've got a secure future any assurance for me now? How does that give me any assurance during this time of pain and trouble? Well, think of it this way. I could give you one of two guarantees this morning. And the first guarantee might be this. If I could guarantee you a trouble-free life now, before death, but no guarantee of a trouble-free eternity. That's the one guarantee. You can have a guarantee of no trouble now, but I can't guarantee you any lack of trouble when you're eternity. Or the second guarantee is this. I can't guarantee you any freedom from trouble now, but I can guarantee you an eternity without trouble. Which guarantee would you choose? This is why Jesus' assurance of a secure eternity is a very powerful one indeed. Because we will be in close abode with the God of the universe. And it's a very real assurance. In fact, we will have. That's inevitable. Various trials and tribulations now. Sickness, despair, fear, loss, even persecution. But we have a guarantee in the very words of Jesus that this experience will be very different when we move from this life to the next. One of the men who was with Jesus, our very author John himself, at this time, this Thursday evening when they gathered and they're having their final meal together, he goes on some years later to write the words of a vision that he receives from God. 
in Revelation chapter 21, and he begins to talk about this, this new abode, this new place. And he says in the first verse, first couple of verses of Revelation 21, when he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. And, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride dressed for her husband. And listen to this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, God's dwelling place, there it is, God's abode is now among his people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no crying, nor pain. Because all the old things have passed away. And of course, you have to look briefly at verse 5. And Thomas, <laughs> Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Those of you who meet regularly with a team at work or, or serve on a committee, you've always got someone like this in the meeting, don't you? Just when you think you've got it all wrapped up, somebody says, oh, wait a minute, I don't know what's going on here. What are we talking about? Am I missing something? And we either love folks like that or we wish they'd disappear into the woodwork. But at least what it does is give our Lord the opportunity to say one of the most powerful, one of the most immortal disturbing and dividing things that he will ever say. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He answers both of Thomas's questions. Where are you going? To the Father. And how do we get there? I'm the way. You go by me. But we need to move on. Assurance number one. Of a, for a troubled heart, your future is secure. Assurance number two, from verses 7 to 11, you know the Father right now. You know God the Father right now. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, here's another one, like Thomas, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How then can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you I do not say on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing this work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Here's a wonderful truth and a wonderful insurance. You don't have to wait till you get to heaven to be introduced to God the Father. You can know him intimately and receive him directly from him, all of the resources that you're going to need to keep afloat during the storm. But what does it mean to know the Father? My concordance tells me that the word know appears 141 times in the Gospel of John alone. But it doesn't always mean exactly the same thing. 
Sometimes, at, at, at one very basic level, the, the word know is used just simply to say, well, I, I know this fact. In other words, that's a chair. Sometimes it's used at that very low level. At other times, it's used at a slightly higher level of knowing not only the fact, but a little bit more about the fact. So, oh, that's a chair, and it's made of wood and several other uh, components. But neither of those forms of knowledge are enough to get us into heaven. Knowledge has to go a little bit further. So the next stage when the word know is used, it's talked about, I not only know a fact, but I understand there's a relationship involved here. I understand not just the fact, but there's a person, and I, I can be related to that person. We see this in John chapter 17 and verse 3, where Jesus says, and he's praying to his Father, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ. It's possible to know God in that way, to understand there's a relationship, but not take it any further. But there's a fourth way in which the word know is used. And it was used in one of the songs we sang just a little bit, a little bit earlier. And it comes from the, that song, I believe, comes from the word of Paul. When Paul, in one quick moment in Philippians chapter 3, tells us what the goal of his life is. And it's simply this, that I may know him. It's all he wants, that I may really, really, really know him. And that's the, that's the knowledge that brings salvation. The knowledge of a relationship that means something. A knowledge of a relationship that is real. And once again we see this echoed again and again in chapter 15. 400 years before Christ was born, the Greek philosopher Plato said this. He said, to find out the father and maker of all of this universe is a hard task. And if we have found him, to speak of him is impossible. Plato was wrong. We can know the Father and the maker of the universe because Jesus has revealed him to us. So you ask this morning, well, why should our hearts be troubled when the creator and governor of the whole universe is our own Father? Absolutely. If we can know the creator, the maker of heaven and earth, and we know he's our Father, and we know him now, why should we be troubled? Yet we still seem to live under the illusion that somehow the will of God and the, and the, the understanding of God would be easier to accept if, if we could some, get some kind of personal visitation, some kind of vision. Then our suffering would become more bearable if we, he were to come and kind of give us this once-for-all personal reassurance, it'd be easier to follow him if we just communicate a bit more clearly. And Jesus is reminding Philip and Thomas and the others that Jesus is just that. The Father simply cannot take a visible, audible form more suitable than he has done in the Son. He cannot reveal himself to us any more clearly than he already has in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing more we need to know of him at this point in time. Jesus is the clearest possible reflection of the Father's own words and deeds. We know the Father now. We can call today at any time during the day, during the night, on the maker of heaven and earth to come to our rescue. 
with words and deeds of grace and instruction. And when we do that, we're not just going to any old wise man or woman. We're not just consulting the writings of any old sage of history. We're not looking at the penned words of even the greatest of human counselors or philosophers. No, we're going to the very source of all truth and knowledge, the maker and founder of it all. How is it possible? Because we have a real, intimate relationship with God the Father. Jesus says, verse 7, from now on, you do know Him. You do know Him. Does He have the answers for us? Yes, He is. He is the answer. He's the way, the truth, the life. He's the source of all knowledge. And where do we get these answers then? We find them exactly where he has given us all of the answers and exactly where they ought to be in his personal communication to us through his son and through his scriptures. And it's all that we need. So here's two, to me, wonderful assurances. Number one, we can be assured when our hearts are troubled. Number one, because our future is secure. Number two, because we can actually know God the Father As we know the Son and the Holy Spirit, we can know Him right now. And in verse 12 through to verse 15, we have our third and final note of assurance for today. You have the privilege of prayer. Very truly, I tell you. Whenever you see that word, very truly, those of you who remember the old King James Version used to be truly, truly, or verily, verily. Remember that? Whenever you see that, and it's John who uses it more than anyone else, it's Christ's indication that what I'm going to say to you now is super important. It's used fairly sparingly, so whenever you see this very truly, I tell you, it's something really important. Whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing. And they will do even greater things because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. But why pray when you can worry? You know, and that's a plaque, I think, which should be on many Christians' homes. I need it on my wall occasionally. Why pray when you can worry? The thing about worrying is it seems to work sometimes. You ever got that impression? But then there's the opposite point of view, taken by so many, and, and unfortunately so many in the, in the, in the neo-evangelical movement today, that says that what these verses are telling us is that it's, there's a promise here that simply says, name it and it's yours. Just name it and you can have it. This is a belief that makes the Lord not much more than a genie in a bottle. Yet it's clear that Jesus never meant that prayer was some means of just uncorking blessings and uncorking wishes on demand. But having said this, what does this passage say about prayer then and our expectations of answered prayer? And and what are the conditions we must meet if our prayer is indeed to be answered? And I share with you just one or two things in closing. Firstly, verse 12, when we pray, we must pray in faith. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works. This is one of the Lord's most wonderful promises. 
in troubled times, that we're going to do great works, even greater works than he himself did. Very truly, I tell you, assures this is really, really important. This is a, a solemn announcement. And we'll have a lot more to say about it in the coming chapters. But what are these greater things that those coming after Christ will do? He says it very clearly. They will do, he's talking to his disciples and to us, they will do even greater things. Well, first of all, the apostles were, were given unique and very special powers to perform great miracles, to prove their credentials as ambassadors of the Lord Jesus. They weren't greater than Christ, but they did greater works in terms of scope and quantity. Peter preaches one sermon one afternoon and 3,000 people are converted. We don't see Jesus doing that. The good news was taken far beyond the geographical areas in which Jesus himself ministered. And what about today? Can you and I as Christian believers do greater works I've seen videos and pictures of Billy Graham preaching to one million people in one single audience in South Korea. And close on 100,000 men, women, and young people coming forward to receive Christ. Those are great works. We have these great works right in front of us. We have the opportunity to take the gospel across the airwaves to every nation on earth. First it was the printing press, now it's the advent of the download and social media. Great works indeed. Even you and I can reach hundreds through various media, media, day after day, if we set our minds to it. Of course, it's not us doing these greater things. It's God himself working through us. And this is where faith comes in. We have to believe, we have to trust that as we pray, we we would see God doing these great things. Faith, if it does anything at all, faith releases the power of God in our lives. That's what it does. Secondly, we need to pray in Christ's name. Verse 13, 14. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me anything in my name, and I will do it. Again, this is not some sort of magic formula that we automatically attach to our prayer requests. It will guarantee God answering our prayers exactly as we would expect him to. It's absolutely right to complete our prayer by saying, yes, in Jesus' name. There's nothing wrong with that. But it is not some kind of magical incantation that ties the Father into doing exactly what we ask for. So what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? I believe it means this. It means to ask anything of the Father in the name of his Son means simply that we ask Jesus, that we ask as Jesus would ask. We use his name, we ask as he would ask. We ask for what we know would please him and what would bring glory and what would bring glory to the furthering of his work. When a friend says to you, uh, feel free to use my name, normally when meeting somebody, a third person, What they're actually saying, whether they realize it or not, is that they're handing you a great privilege as well as a tremendous responsibility because you have your reputation in your hands right then. They've conceded control of that to you. Whatever you ask in my name, this powerful promise needs to be qualified by the fact that everything else that God has said to us in his word um, 
needs to be taken into consideration here. If we do ask in, in Christ's name, this is not carte blanche to ask for absolutely anything. To ask something in Christ's name means we first of all understand his nature. We know who he is. We know what he wants to do. Because God will always answer our prayer based on his honor and his glory and his will. So when we pray in Christ's name, we are praying by saying, Lord, this is what I know that you have said that you would do. This is what I know that you want. And even when Christ teaches us to pray, he gives us a sample of prayer in Matthew 6. He says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Then he goes on to talk about thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and so on and so on. But it always starts with the name. We need to pray in the name of Christ. And doing that means we understand what it is to be using that name. We understand that Christ is one of love and grace and glory. And finally, and I finish with this, we must pray in loving obedience. We pray in faith, we pray in the name of Christ, and we pray in loving obedience. Verse 15 says, If you love me, keep my commandments. Love and obedience are critical parts of prayer. Because the psalmist says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But again, we don't obey the Lord simply because we we want our prayers answered. That's like a child before Christmas behaving like an absolute angel because he's got certain presents in mind. We obey him because we love him. And the more we obey him, the more we experience his love and the more we see him answering our prayers. To To keep God's commandments means to value them, to treasure them, to guard them and to follow them. Believing prayer is indeed a wonderful, a wonderful uh, remedy to a uh, troubled heart. And when you love somebody, you do all you can to honor that person and their name. You would never use the name of that person or allow anyone else to use the name in a demeaning or insulting way. And love is one of the most enduring themes of this gospel. The word love is used well over 50 times by John. And so the injunction is to pray out of a heart of love that is in turn illustrated by a life of obedience. It's very awkward sometimes to be asked to pray with somebody, and I'm not here referring to any recent requests for prayer that any of you might have have asked of me, but it's difficult sometimes to be asked for someone to pray when it is abundantly clear that the person wanting you to pray for them seems to have little desire to live in accordance with God's will. And who shows little evidence of really loving God at all? And they say, but pray. I want this, I need this, I want the other thing. And I'll never turn away anybody who wants prayer, but I always have to make it clear that God does have conditions for answered prayer. And to put it as simply as possible, as as John does here, God says, I will grant your requests, but I do want you to love me. And I do want you to show me your love through your obedience. So we pray in faith. We pray in Christ's name. And we pray in obedience. So, our hearts may be troubled this morning. I'd be very surprised if there is a single person here this morning whose heart hasn't been deeply troubled over the last period of time. 
for one reason or another. Some of us right now have deeply troubled hearts for many reasons. For the disciples, the trouble was that they had a sense that death was near. They didn't know it. They didn't know how close death was. And for many of us, death is a lot closer than it is for others. For Christ, it was only hours away. And within a generation or so, possibly with the exception of John himself, every one of those men in that room will have met a very ugly death indeed. And if we're honest, uh, death still remains for us as humanity the ultimate fear until, until we hear our Savior say this, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Not a day goes by without problems of some kind. And the disciples are wondering, as we are, how are we going to handle this? How are we going to handle this? Each day we roll out of bed and face our daily lives. We face painful decisions or numbing mundaneness. We face physical, physical pain or we suffer emotional alienation. We almost, almost give up hope. And then we hear Jesus saying, My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And I'm going and I'm going to prepare a place for you and I will come back and I will take you to be with me so that where I am you may be also. Your heart is troubled this morning. I leave this with you. Your future is secure. If you know the Lord Jesus, your future is secure. I can't guarantee you a painless life here, but I can guarantee you a painless life on the other side of the Jordan. You know the Father. You know the maker and creator of this universe. You know him intimately. And you have this wonderful privilege of prayer. You can turn to him at any time and praying in faith and praying in the name of Jesus and praying out of a heart of love and obedience. The Lord will surprise you with the answers that he will bring you. Mostly, you will find that he will bring calm to your troubled heart. If this morning you are not a believer, you are not one who has experienced the the lordship of Christ in your life, you have not had that experience of crossing over, as our pastor illustrated a little earlier, crossing over via the cross, via grace, to the presence of God, then a lot of what I've said this morning can be yours. In fact, it can all be yours. All you need to do is admit your sin, come to Christ, throw your life to him. Let him come into your heart and change you. And then it won't be the end of your troubles. (laughs) It may be the beginning of them. But boy, are there some great assurances. God bless you. So we pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for the troubles in our lives. Thank you, Father, for those things that trouble us this morning. We thank you, Lord, because we know this is an opportunity for you to show your grace and your glory in our lives. So we don't come to you complaining, but we come with hearts of gratitude because you have seen fit to draw us close to you. Lord, thank you this morning that our future is secure in you 
Thank you, dear Lord, that we know the Father as you know the Father. And thank you, O Lord, that this prayer, this very prayer that we pray at this moment in time will be answered because we pray in faith, we pray in your name, and we pray out of hearts of love and obedience. So my prayer is this morning, Lord, if there be a troubled heart, this morning in our midst, calm that heart, we pray. Bring assurance to that heart, we pray, whatever the trouble might be. Bring assurance, bring love, bring grace, bring peace. And this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.